Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom, everyone. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuva in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avina Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we're delighted to sit and study your words once again. Lord, we know that you have the words of life. Indeed, as, um, as you challenged the apostles uh, so long ago when you asked them, Will you again? All will you also leave me? As you were uh, noticing that so many people had left after harsh words that you were using, and uh, they looked at you and they said, "Lord, where, where else is there to go? Essentially, you have the words of life." And so, Yeshua, we sit and we study at your feet because indeed you are the author of life. You have the words of life, and there's nowhere else to go uh, in order to receive this life. You have the bread from heaven whereby which when we um, dine on such bread, we will never hunger again. You have the water of life, whereby which when we drink of it, we will never thirst again. And so we thank you for the opportunity to uh, worship you in this manner. Give us the opportunity, give us the capacity to dig deeper into the text. Give us the um, uh, the desire to seek to um, know your ways and to study for, for the uh, purpose of being pleasing to you. Um, for being perfected, for being grown up, for being brought to the point of maturity. Uh, indeed, none of us has all the final answers, and so we, we thank you for um, the revelation that you've given to us and the awesome responsibility uh, that is uh, before us to study in order to do what you say. Study what you say in order to do what you say, in order to teach others to do the, do the same. Be with each and every student who has joined me tonight in the live class. I pray that you will give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, help the sp- uh, help them in their uh, weaknesses. Help the uh, um, help the mind to work sharply so that they can uh, um, engage in the study. Uh, be with the teacher as well. He needs lots of help. And I pray that you'll also be with those who are listening to this study after the fact. Um, give them the opportunity, if so possible, to join the study live. But if not, thank you for each and every person who has um, uh, tuned in to this particular podcast. I pray that you'll continue to bless us as we go forward, and you'll we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's um, date stamp our recording. Tonight is July 12th. On most of um, on the on your side of the world, that is to say, for most of you, July twelfth, two thousand sixteen. To be honest, where I'm at, it's actually already July thirteenth. But um, I happen to be in Asia, 
So if you can join me each Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., I, I um, come to you live by Skype. We switched from WizIQ to Skype uh, a few weeks back, and we're still working out some of the bugs, but for the most part, I think it is an enjoyable experience. Um, I record every session, so if you aren't able to make it live, then um, uh, just be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, just go to iTunes and, and type in my name or type in Galatians in the search field and hit enter, and you should be able to find the podcast there. Otherwise, I encourage you to visit my website at um, tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And right on the homepage, there's a link. Actually, there should be a little banner at the very top uh, that has the information about the live Galatians study. You can click there. Or if you don't see that banner, um, then just click on the link that says Galatians Commentary, and um, you can go from there and follow the uh, information relevant to join the study, uh, to receive the notes, to receive the links necessary to join the Skype section uh, session each, each week, etc., etc. Uh, one last final note real quick, logistic-wise. Um, we are on week 32. Each semester is 10 weeks long, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we start again with a new semester. And we're just going to plug along through the commentary that I wrote, which is available at my website. It's about 180 or so pages. And we're just going to keep plugging along um, paragraph by paragraph, week by week, until we finish it. So for that reason, I'm not really in a hurry, and I'm not on, on really any set schedule other than that. We just meet every week and then cover whatever material uh, that we need to. Um, so if you miss any past lessons, since we're already in the middle of the study, we're in week 32, if you missed any past lessons, um, either catch the podcast on iTunes or go to my website and you can catch up with the uh, all the audio broadcasts are posted on my website there. After you click on the Galatians page, just scroll down, uh, uh, click on the live uh, study, and then scroll down a little further and you'll see information regarding the audio recordings, Okay. That being said, let's open with some liturgy, and then we'll get started with the study. Uh, I'm choosing the same liturgy that we've been using for this section. We're in section number 7, entitled Under the Law, and I've been using the liturgy from the um, uh, the book of Ezekiel for my selection of the Tanakh, and then for the, book, uh, for the uh, New Testament or apostolic writings, the liturgy will come out of the book of Galatians. For those of you who are joining me live tonight... Um, You'll see that uh, if you look at your screen, I've got Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 28 out of the ESV pulled up. And I put some Hebrew in there and some transliteration in there and some columns for those of you who are trying to um, track along with the Hebrew. Uh, let's read the English, and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew. The English reads, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. It's quite easy to see why I read this liturgy, because according to my understanding of these passages, these are very literal promises that have yet to um, take place. Ezekiel foreseeing through the Spirit, by the way, into the future, a time when God would um, call Israel back into the land and place within them his own spirit, causing them to walk into his ways. Now, we know Israel has been replaced into the land. However, she has yet to uh, corporately uh, demonstrate that she has the spirit of God within her. So we know that part of this passage is still yet future. And that's the part I'm looking forward to as a Messianic Jew. I am looking forward to, with anticipation, to the day when Israel will cry out, when she will recognize, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, namely Yeshua, the Messiah. When she recognizes that Jesus is her king, and she embraces him as Lord and king. And it's going to take the Spirit of God writing the laws of God on the hearts of those stubborn children of Israel. And so thus we know these words are very relevant. These are in fact passages of the New Covenant. Um, we're going to read about these in Jeremiah as well, Ezekiel and Jeremiah writing in, uh, uh, around the same time period. And so it's um, it's important for us as uh, believers in Messiah to um, understand the relevance of these truths as it pertains to, say, Israel. Because we see that the promise of the Spirit will cleanse Israel, in verse 25, and that God will put his Spirit within them in verse 26 and 27, replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And notice the result is that in verse 27, that Israel will walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules. We then begin to understand that the Torah isn't really relaxed and done away with, set aside in Jesus. Rather, the Spirit of God actually makes the Torah of God a reality in the life of a believer. To be sure, these Jews... Uh, these Israelites in this passage are becoming um, believers because when God says, "I'll put my Spirit within you and 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 remove the heart of stone," that, that's 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 salvation language, right? And so it's interesting that salvation that the, the Torah is given or demonstrated within the life of a believer in these passages, albeit believing Israelites, many of which are probably Jews, although um, truly Israel is comprised of Jew and Gentile. But that's a different sermon. Let me go back and read the uh, Hebrew for you real quick, and then we'll pull up some Greek. Uh, some uh, New Testament and Greek as well. The Hebrew of these passages reads, "Lachain mor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai Hashem lo lemaal chamani ose bet Yisrael ki im l'shem kadshi asher chalaltem baguim asher batem sham vekidashti et shmi hagadol ham chalal baguim asher chalaltem batocham veyadu haguim ki ani Adonai neum Adonai Hashem bekidashti vachem." Lakachti <laughs> Et lev ha even mi sarachem, but not a tilachem lev basar. Ve et ruchi etain, bekirbachem vaasiti et asherbachukhai, te lehu, mishpatai tishmuru vaasitem. Vishabtem ba aretz asher natati, 
לאבותיכם, וחיתם לי לעם ואנוכי אהיה לכם לאלוהים. Okay, let's turn to some passages out of the New Testament. The verses I'm going to be reading are a select group of verses where the phrase under the law shows up in the ESV. And to be sure, it's the Greek equivalent of Panaman. So it's not actually every place where under the law shows up in the ESV. To be sure, if we were to run that search, which I actually have done, um, under the law actually shows up 12 different times in the New Testament itself, uh, spanning the books of Romans, 1 Corinthians, our five that show up in Galatians, and then we have some more that show up in Philippians, Hebrews, and James. And then if we were to actually expand the search to include the phrase under law, minus the um, article the, um, in the English, then we would pull two more verses out of Romans. But um, in reality, uh, the verses that I've chosen for the liturgy are just the five locations in Galatians, so they're only Galatians, and they are only the places that use the exact Greek phrase, huponamon. So that's why I only have five, five for my liturgy. So let's look at those verses real quick. Most of them are familiar to you. Um, I'll read the English, and then I'll just read the Hebrew, and we'll go, I'm sorry, the Hebrew and then the Greek, and we'll just go like that. Galatians 3.23 reads, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith, until the coming faith would be revealed. And the Greek reads Protu de Elfane tain piston, Panaman Ephrumetha, Sun Kleamanoi Aistain Melusun Piston Apocalufenai. And the next verse is Galatians four and verse four and five, two verses. Uh, reads, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, <clears throat> born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the Greek reads, Hati de elthen to pleroma tu kranu, exa pestelen hotheos ton huian autu, genamanon ek gunaikos, genamanon hupanamon, hina tus hupanamon exogorese, hina ten hui uh, and let's keep reading. Uh, the next verse is Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The Greek reads, Legate moi hoi hupanaman, delantes enai, ton naman uakwete. And the last one is Galatians 5.18, a very familiar passage that's often brought into discussions between um, Christians and, let me say it this way, between traditional Christians and and, and uh, to, uh, uh, Messianic uh, Jews and Gentiles who embrace the law. So let me say it this way. It's brought up in the conversation between those who do not uh, espouse to a Hebraic lifestyle and those who do. So we have these, a conversation between these two, two in-house um, believers, right? Uh, this verse reads, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? And I hear that often. In fact, that, that's basically a slogan within Christian, uh, traditional Christian circles. The Greek is, Okay, that's, that's our liturgy for tonight. Let's jump over to the study. Um, we're in section 7, which corresponds to... If you've gotten the written commentary, I haven't updated the written one in a while. Uh, I haven't had the need to add anything or take anything out. So we're we're about page 59, um, if you've gotten the written commentary. And we left off 
near the top of page 59, where we're discussing Paul's use of this phrase under the law in, for instance, Romans, and we picked out, we singled out Romans 6, 14, and 15, which, oddly enough, if we were to go over and read those two passages uh, out of the ESV, um, in the ESV, Romans 6.14 reads, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. And then 15 reads, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Interestingly enough, um, the KJV and the ESV both do the same thing with this particular Greek phrase. It's not actually the phrase hupanaman that shows up in these two uh, Romans passages. If you're in the screen with me tonight, if you're in the class with me tonight, you'll see on my screen right now I've got a web page pulled up from um, blueletterbible.com, I'm sorry, uh, .org, and if I click on the hot link for Romans 6.14 and bring up the Greek corresponding to the ESV that's showing up, um, what I end up with is you can see that uh, uh, Hupa, I'm sorry, Hupanaman does show up in this passage, Hupanaman in 6.14. Let's make sure it shows up in 15 as well. Yeah, okay, it, it does show up here. This is Hupanaman. Um, but elsewhere in Romans, um, it, it, it's not actually the Greek phrase Hupanaman. It's, it's en namu or something like that. So we have somewhat synonymous terms, Hupa being translated generally into English as under or within. And the word en in Greek, en, spelled en, is generally translated as, as a, the equivalent of in in English. So en, in Greek, oftentimes shows up as in in English. So if, if Paul were to say we're not en namu, en namu, we're not in the law or within the law, uh, don't be surprised if your English translation shows this as under the law. Um, so, uh, that being the case, um, don't get too wrapped up on the Greek terms, to be honest with you. Hupanaman, uh, Ennamu, things like that. Let me just very quickly look at uh, one of the other Romans passages. I'm waiting for the uh, website to switch over for me. Give me a moment here. Uh, let's see, that's Romans 6, 14 and 15. Definitely uses Hupanaman, which, as I mentioned, gets translated often as under the law, or under, hupanaman, under the law. But in um, Romans 2, let me look at 2.12 for us real quick, waiting for the website. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's according to the ESV um, for Romans 2.12. But if we look at the Greek then we'll see that it is the phrase under uh, is Strong's number uh, 1722, which corresponds to the Greek word en. So it, it's actually en namo. It's not hupanaman, husay gara namo is, okay. Kai husay en namo. Okay, so, um, and then we also have dianamu in this passage as well, uh, which corresponds to the English of essentially by the law, you know, dia, by, uh, through, and namo, namu, uh, law. So, this is a great verse, uh, just to highlight the fact that if you, in your English translations, have under the law, then uh, don't be surprised if the Greek either has hupa for under, or it might have en uh, for under. So, I brought that up to, to bring up a very simple point. 
It's context, really, that helps determine. And that's where we're going to go in my commentary. It's context that really determines the meanings of these Greek words, whether Paul's using hupa or en. Uh, um, that, that's not going... I, I don't think he's going to... I don't, I don't think he's trying to demonstrate uh, that one that there's a difference between the two words. Rather, the, the Greeks seems to be somewhat synonymous, meaning we're within the guidelines or parameters of whatever authority is being spoken of by the, this preposition um, under or in. So, if we go over to my commentary, let's uh, pick up the reading. Um, let me back up just a paragraph. And what we what we've done is, uh, for context' sake, we're looking at um, we're looking at we're looking at the book of Galatians and how Paul uses this phrase under the law. It's no secret that in traditional Christian teachings, traditional Christian uh, um, uh, argumentation that essentially the phrase under the law is kind of a generic way of saying within the boundaries of the authority of the Torah, that is to say under obligation to the law. So if I were a, Christ, a traditional Christian pastor and I were teaching my congregants that we as Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, but we as Christians are no longer, and I'm going to use the phrase under the law, if I were to use that phrase in my church circles, quite often the pastor is going to be wielding the phrase to explain to his congregants that said Christians have no obligation to Seventh-day Sabbath, kosher-keeping festivals, wearing tzitzit, putting mezuzah on your door, um, and, and the other things that pertain to what most Christians identify as the ceremonial laws. Understand? So, it's within that mindset that I'm challenging us as Bible students to go back and look at these phrases under the law and see if that's really what Paul was trying to convey. Was Paul really trying to convey the idea of under obligation to keep the law? Is that what he meant in all the verses, at least in Galatians? Since we can only really focus on Galatians for now. By the way, when we get to the um, uh, both the summary of my commentary as well as when we get to the verse-by-verse -verse section uh, several months from now, we're going to take a more careful look at these phrases. But for now, this is kind of just a primer. Uh, but, for instance, if I just pick on these these passages, these five out of Galatians, are we to understand that when Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under obligation to the law? And that is to say, we had to keep the ceremonial law under the ceremonial law, imprisoned until the coming faith would reveal? Is that what he means by Galatians 3.23? Does he mean in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the ceremonial law, born under Mosaic law to redeem those who were under the Mosaic law, so that we might receive adoption as sons? And uh, specifically in Galatians 5, uh, 18, well, I suppose I can use 4, 21 as well. Tell me you who desire to be under the Mosaic law, do you not listen to the law? And then 5, 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the Mosaic law. Now, specifically 5, 18 is the one that, that many pastors are probably going to get the most mileage out of. And that in, 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 um, in, uh, connection with the two out of Romans 6, 14, and 15, which we're looking at in my commentary. First, sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the Mosaic law, but under grace. What what are, what are then? Are we to sin because we're not under the Mosaic law, but under grace by no means? Now, notice I'm reading ESV, but I'm inserting the word Mosaic, because that's essentially the theology that's being used by today's Christian um, pastors and seminarians and teachers to explain that Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, have little if no obligation to the ceremonial law, viz. the law of Moses. Thus, 
We excuse Sabbath keeping in place of Sunday keeping. We excuse kosher keeping in favor of uh, eating whatever has been put on the table, etc., etc. And that's the point I'm challenging. Let's go to my commentary. So David Stern's commentary, uh, which I have a, I've lifted a quote from in my own commentary here. David Stern singles out, for instance, uh, Hupanamon under the law, which appears five times in Galatians, he notes. Uh, and Gla- and uh, David Stern has an interesting take on this phrase. He says that it means, that it, I'm sorry, David Stern says that it never means simply, quote, under the Torah, which is what Christians would say it means, in the sense of subjection to its provisions, living within its framework. Rather, and David Stern's, he's, he's, he's going somewhat in the direction that I'm going, meaning he doesn't think that it's fair to take the phrase and just woodenly translate it as living within the framework of the Torah under the law. Rather, David Stern goes on to say, with one easily explainable variation, it is Shaul shorthand for, and are you ready for this? This one's a mouthful. This is David Stern, quote, living under the oppression caused by being enslaved to the social system or the mindset that results when Torah is perverted into legalism, end quote. So David Stern has a lengthy uh, paraphrase when it comes to under the law. To be sure, if we were to look up um, uh, under the law uh, in those passages um, from the uh, uh, from Galatians, uh, maybe I'll do it a little later on. We'll see what David Stern would have to say. Um, I have his complete Jewish Bible here, but unfortunately I've whited out <laughs> what it originally said, so I can't see it. I'll have to look it up on my computer a bit later. But for now, let's keep reading my commentary, and I think you'll catch the gist of what I'm trying to uh, teach. Uh, by the way, we don't have a lot uh, a lot farther to go on this uh, commentary. We'll have, I think, about two more pages, and then we'll be done with this section uh, under the law. Turning again to our example from Romans 6, 14, and 15 above, quote, under the law, end quote, used there indeed refers to being found to be, quote, under the condemnation of the Torah, condemnation caused by being a slave to one's personal sin as opposed to being set free by Yeshua the Messiah, end quote. These are my own words. To be under the law in these two verses from Romans is to be under the condemnation of the wrath of God, condemnation reserved for those who have not surrendered their lives to his saving power. So I go on to say that, to be fair to context, every time we encounter this phrase under the law in your English translation, just just throw out the Greek for a split second and just focus on what you have in front of you in English. Every time you encounter the phrase under the law in your English translation, you're going to have to determine from context of the surrounding passages, surrounding verses, what is Paul meaning by this phrase? Does he simply mean under obligation to the law of Moses, which would include Sabbath and fast and kosher and circumcision, things like that? Or is he trying to in, 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 imply something else? I think, for instance, in Romans 6, 14 and 15, that he doesn't necessarily mean under obligation to keep the law of Moses, so much as he means, um, when he uses the phrase under the law, that we're not under bondage, which results... Uh, under under bondage to sin, which would re- which would result in under condemnation, uh, God's condemnation for um, uh, uh, unres- un unrepentant sinners. So the point from Romans six fourteen and fifteen, in comparison to say the Galatians passages, is that uh, the 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 famous passage that that is often cited: "We're not under law; we're under grace." Which I I think I've seen that as a bumper sticker slogan. We are not under the law, we're under grace. That's taken directly from Romans 6, 14, and 15. We're not under the law, we're under grace. And, or perhaps the Galatians 5 passage as well. But either way, uh, in Galatians, it seems to be Paul is not talking about obligation to the law of Moses. 
Instead, the context demands that he's talking about we're not under, and he uses the word law there as kind of a, a synonym or a metonym, uh, a, a circumlocution for bondage to sin and condemnation reserved for sinners, that type. The whole concept of sin and slavery and bondage and punishment that comes from uh, being an unrepentant sinner, that's the concepts that are being taught in the Romans 6 passage. Go back and read the entire passage to Romans 6. In fact, do yourself a favor and start back at Romans chapter 5 and work your way towards 6 and keep reading through 7 and then don't stop till you get to really chapter 8 which has Paul saying that, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? A very famous passage that we quote out of Romans 8, verse first few verses. And why does Paul come to the conclusion that there's no condemnation in Romans chapter 8? It's because we're no longer under condemnation in Romans chapter 6, 15, 14 and 15. See my point? So that's, I think, the better way to read this passage in the book of Romans. So let's keep reading. To be fair to context, Paul does in fact apply this condemnation aspect and application of under the law from Romans 6, 14, and 15, specifically to Galatians 5, 18, right? So we do have um, the, the, um, the impetus to pull some of the uh, definitions from one a book and passage over into another passage, especially if the context is going to allow it. So if we look at, say, Romans 5, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.18, again, if we were to pull the context, we would see that Paul's building on this theme of freedom, eleutheria, I believe it is in the Greek, this this idea of freedom that he introduces in 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. Therefore, don't be entangled again with the yoke of slavery. And so this, these, these, these concepts of freedom and slavery are introduced in Galatians 5, and it's within that context that we start working down through the passage and we end up with this uh, verse, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. That's Galatians 5.18 according to the KJV. Let's look at one more co- uh, Bible commentary on this passage. This is John K. McKee of TNN Online. He is a Messianic uh, teacher, meaning he espouses to the Hebraic lifestyle and uh, believes that, like I do, that the Torah has not been relaxed in Jesus. He writes, um, I'm sorry, he, in my opinion, he correctly agrees with this Galatians condemnation definition as well. Addressing Galatians 5.18 in his article, What Does Under the Law Really Mean? He writes, quote, Knowing that under the law means being subject, uh, being subject to the Torah's penalties allows this verse to make much more sense to us as messianics. If you are truly led by God's Holy Spirit, then you are not subject to the Torah's penalties. If you are truly led by the Spirit, then you will not be led to disobey the Lord and be cursed. Rather, if you are truly led by the Spirit, you will naturally obey our Heavenly Father and obey the commandments of Torah and be blessed just as the Torah tells us. End quote. If we look at the footnote to number 48, we'll see that that was lifted from his www.tnnonline.net and he has an article there on the two houses, Torah under the law, etc., etc. So, uh, go back and read the rest of the article. I think it's very informative. It's, it's really um, um, beneficial for us to begin to uh, apply this context, um, this apply the context of under the law from within the local context that it's found in, and not apply a generic under the law of Moses um, meaning to this phrase under the law whenever we find it in Paul, because otherwise we're going to miss really what Paul's trying to say. Make sense? So, um, let me see if I can pull the uh, uh, the David Stern's version 
of these uh, passages that I was looking at early. Give me one moment and see if my website's going to let me do it. Uh, where could I find a CJB with all of the passages? You know what? I'll do it a little later. Let's keep reading my own commentary. In conclusion to the section on under law, which I mentioned before, it's just a very short section, because in my opinion, it's very easy to just simply take under the law and apply the context, rather than, for instance, like we did with works of the law, where, where we should, that phrase in Paul, oftentimes, more often than not, works of the law is a, 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 a term that Paul uses to um, convey a, a, a specific context that seems to be applicable in more than one place more often uh, even though it's used uh, throughout Romans and Galatians. But in comparison, under the law seems to have differing meanings, um, not contradictory meanings, but differing meanings that are specific to the local context that you find it in. In other words, uh, to state it a different way, don't just automatically apply the context of Romans to Galatians and vice versa. Make sense? Okay. In conclusion to this section, whenever we encounter the phrase under the law, we must be careful to examine the context of the passage in question if we are to properly interpret and apply its usage. Thus far, we have examined two of Paul's more well-known examples of this phrase under the law. We've got the Romans usage that teaches us that under the law is equated with under condemnation or under bondage. Uh, to be sure, every genuine follower of Yeshua has been redeemed from the ultimate curse pronounced in the Torah. We must remind ourselves that such a curse is reserved for those who are under law, meaning those who are under bondage. So condemnation follows bondage, and bondage comes when you have not been set free by the Messiah, when your heart is still the heart of stone, excuse me, the heart of stone like we read about in the Ezekiel passage. That's why we can say that national Israel is still under the law. Why? They're under bondage. Why? Which means they're under condemnation. Why? Because their heart has not been softened as a corporate people group, and they've not received the Spirit of God like God promised yet. So therefore, they are under the law. In that particular context, they are under bondage, therefore they are under condemnation. However, if you are in Messiah, I go on to say in my commentary, then you are not under condemnation. And that's what we read in Romans 8.1. That's the culmination of Paul's um, teaching of the, the believer's relationship to the law. Quite simply, if I as I pause, what is the believer's relationship to the law? Well, it depends on your position before God. If you are a sinner in God's sight, if you have not accepted Yeshua, if you have not surrendered to the Messiah Yeshua, then you are under bondage. You are within slavery. You are still a slave to sin, and therefore the penalties spelled out by the Torah fall on you. You are under its jurisdiction in the sense that you are under its penalties, and therefore you are, whether you think you're under an obligation to keep it or not, is a moot point. From God's perspective, you are certainly under the penalty of the law, and therefore, if you do not confess your sin and surrender to Yeshua before judgment day comes, then God will bring the condemnation of the law down upon you. And yes, it will can be said then that you are under the condemnation of the law. So if you're a sinner tonight, surrender to Yeshua. Surrender to the power of the Spirit. Let God's Spirit soften your heart, and you will come out from underneath the condemnation of the law. Right? So that's your relationship to the law if you're a sinner. Now, what if you're a saint? What if you're a believer? What if you were counted among the redeemed? Well, then, first of all, Baruch Hashem. 
praise God that you've accepted Yeshua. And if you're a Jewish person, even more so, because Jesus is not the God of the Gentiles. He's not the Messiah of the Gentiles only. He is the Messiah for Jews. What does Paul say to the Jew first and also to the Greek? So if you are a Jewish person listening to my commentary tonight and you have accepted Yeshua as your Messiah, then Baruch Hashem, blessed be his name. I'm glad that you have accepted him. But guess what? Your relationship to the law is now this. Here's your primary relationship to the law if you're a Jewish person in Messiah. You are now no longer under the penalties reserved for unrepentant sinners. You're no longer, in other words, under the condemnation of the Torah. However, as I understand what the Bible teaches us regarding our covenant responsibility to the law of Moses, we are still within its boundaries and within its parameters. As believers, we do not get excused from enjoining uh, covenant membership, to, um, sorry, covenant obedience to the law of Moses. I don't think that's the proper way in which to interpret the the uh, uh, bulk of the apostolic scriptures, particularly those in Paul that refer that uh, start talking about the believer's relationship to the law. So, in a word, as a Messianic Jew, I believe that Messianic Jews and Gentiles, those Jews and Gentiles who have accepted Yeshua as their Messiah, both retain their covenant responsibility to the law. Yes, we are law, we are we are we have been acquitted in regards to the penalties. Uh, that that point to the um, condemnation of the law, but but we are still within the boundaries of covenant obedience. Therefore, if you sin as a believer, if you willfully sin, or if you ignorantly sin, um, or mistakenly sin, as many of us, uh, many believers will testify, uh, it's not a sin-free experience. Unfortunately, we still have sin. Well, guess what? God's not going to condemn you. He's not going to. Um, destroy you. He's not going to send you to hell just because you sinned once as a believer. Instead, what God has done, what does the, what what do we read? Um, that we have forgiveness if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we read in the New Testament. God will forgive us through Yeshua because God sees us through the uh, blood that was poured out. God sees. Yeshua as the propitiation for our sins. Yeshua became the sin sacrifice. Therefore, we no longer have to worry. It's the substitutionary language that we uh, learn about as we study through the Torah of Moshe, particularly when we study the sacrifices. God doesn't meet the punishment out on the person who brings the sacrifice. What happened in the days of the Tanakh? The, the animal died. And when the person sinned, the animal died. Because why? The person leaned his hands on the animal, confessed his sins, and the priest was present to see that, and um, therefore the sin was transferred to the animal, and therefore the animal took the place of the sinner, and the animal had to die. So the same thing happens with Yeshua. This is um, Salvation 101, obviously, but the same thing happens with Yeshua. In Messiah, instead of the condemnation of sin coming down on our head and us receiving that penalty, which would be death, God instead chose to um, to uh, put the penalty on his son. Yeshua became the sacrifice. Yeshua became the um, uh, the uh, uh, the sin bearer. And therefore, we know that the penalty, which was death, was meted out uh, on Yeshua, for, uh, on Yeshua's life. Instead, he died instead of us. He died in our place. And so when we accept Yeshua, we have that substitutionary 
um, theology that we read about in the Tanakh, we have that uh, uh, taking place all over again. Yeshua died, therefore we don't have to die. But now we can live because Yeshua died. Or as one popular Christian uh, singer, uh, Crystal Lewis, I think, saying, she says, I now live because Christ died. I now live because Christ died. What a wonderful truth. Amen? Amen. So that doesn't mean that we are free from our obligation to the law. Let's keep reading my own commentary. So, um, the curse that we read about in the law, the curse, the condemnation, is reserved for those who are under the law. If you are in Messiah, then you're not under condemnation. Read Romans 8.1. You are, in fact, the righteousness of God in Messiah. What is more, the real change that takes place in a person's life is affected by the Ruach Kodesh when, because of Yeshua's bloody, sacrificial death, the sinner takes on the status of righteous. Amen. That's a good place to say amen, people. Legalistically following up the Torah does not change your status before God. And, of course, um, that would be a... Um, if we were to talk about legalistically following up the Torah, this would be, for instance, the popular view taught in Christian circles that those Jews in the first century that were hearing Paul's words uh, spoken in the Galatians were actually guilty of following up the Torah legalistically, hoping that their Torah obedience would gain them right standing with God, that their Torah obedience would cause them to be counted as genuine covenant members in Israel, that their Torah obedience would count as salvation. Of course, um, there are manifold problems with that particular uh, view of the first century uh, Torah-keeping, but I've already talked about that in previous co uh, commentaries. Go back and listen to my podcast. Man cannot add to that which God perfects. It, it's not anything that we can do on our own um, that brings God's that, that, that swings God's favor, that, that, that earns God's favor, that, that earns the status of righteous before God. Rather, it is the work of the cross to which we surrender. It's not a work that we do under our own power. It's a work that Christ has already done for us. We simply, um, as, as believers, we simply um, accept the free gift. We, we surrender to the saving power of Messiah, and therefore his account is credited to our account. We were bankrupt. We were bankrupt. There was nothing we could do. We're dead in trespasses and sin. Paul uses that language. Moreover, as I keep reading my own commentary, top of page 60, moreover, in accordance with Shaul's use of under the law in Galatians 4.21, which we read about in our liturgy, let me just pull the passage again. Um, Galatians 4.21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Right? What's Paul talking about? Is he trying to... Uh, is he trying to have this discussion to people who are trying to be under the condemnation, right? In other words, if, if you're hearing me say that under the law in Romans 6, for, uh, uh, 14 and 15, uh, quite often means, um, I'm sorry, 14 and 15 quite often means under the uh, penalties of this, under, under the bondage to sin and therefore the condemnation of law. Is Paul trying to say in 421 of Galatians, tell me you who desire to be under the penalty of the law and the condemnation of the law spells out? Now, wouldn't that be an absurd, uh, absurd letter if that's what Paul meant? What, 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 what believer listening to Paul's letter being read aloud in church would, um, would, would have Paul saying, uh, would understand Paul to say under the law here to mean under the condemnation. Do not listen to the law. Is does he does Paul really think that the that his believers, in other words, his Christian Gentiles in Galatia, does he really believe that they were seeking to go under the bondage of sin and the penalty of the law? Right. <laughs> 
doesn't make much sense if you think about it, right? Anyone who who has a working brain, as soon as he figures out that there are penalties for breaking the law and a condemnation reserved for anyone whose heart remains cold, who would seek to be in such a position? No one. And I don't think that's what Paul is trying to say. So when we go back to my commentary, in Galatians 4.21, when Paul speaks against Gentile proselyte conversion to Judaism, in his mind, an unnecessary and unsupposed legal change in social status added nothing to those wishing to be counted as true Israelites in the Torah community. So if we were to go back and look at, let me this time for those of you who are in the class with me, I actually do want to pull up Galatians 4.21 because I want to pull up the context. Uh, just give us kind of a mini exegetical study on Galatians 4.21. Um, if we look at this passage, I've got it pulled up uh, um, for you, those of you who are in the class. If we were to start in, say, 4.1, uh, we, we see that Paul's bringing in this discussion of an heir uh, as a child, and um, the heir is a child... As long as he's a child, he's no different from the slave, meaning he hasn't he hasn't received the inheritance. Um, and Paul goes on to use his famous uh, analogy of the um, of the uh, the guardians and managers um, being enslaved to the elementary principles. Uh, he talks about Yeshua being born of a woman, born of the law in Galatians four four, which I don't want to look at just a moment. Um, but then he talks. He continues to talk about the adoption that we receive as sons in Galatians four, five, and six. And because we're sons, the, the Spirit has been sent into our hearts, and we cry out, "Abba, Father." Galatians four, six. And therefore, the famous four, seven Galatians four, seven passage: "So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God." Notice that's a status change. We we go from being a slave to being a an heir. Right, we're no longer slaves. Same, similar themes as we read about in Galatians. I'm sorry, in uh, uh, Romans uh, six, but not quite the same. Um, um, not quite the same context here. Um, then he goes on to talk and uh, switches gears just a little bit. Uh, he's still talking about slavery uh, in Galatians four eight. Um, slavery that's int- that's uh, elaborated in four nine four ten. Observing days, months, years, things like that. Uh, 4.12, I'm afraid that, um, I'm sorry, in um, uh, 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 which passage do I want to bring up now? We're working our way towards 4.21, right? Um, uh, starting in, like, say, verse 4.20, uh, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. Why is Paul perplexed? Well, if we... Remember, the context of Galatians is that the Galatian Gentiles were being influenced by these people from James um, who were teaching essentially the standard uh, prevailing Jewish theology of the first century, was, which was that um, all Jews and only Jews share a place in the world to come. All Jews and only Jews are obligated to keep the Torah. All Jews and only Jews uh, have a right standing with God and are counted among the righteous. All Jews and only Jews are true Israelites and true covenant members, and therefore receive the true spirit, and therefore have a place in the world to come, etc. In other words, um, salvation was a Jewish-only concept. And therefore, if a Gentile wished to be counted among the righteous, if a Gentile wished to be brought into this covenant with with the Jews, or this covenant with God, uh, the Gentiles had to take on legal Jewish status first. 
And it's that legal Jewish status that gained them entryway into the covenant. It's that legal Jewish status that allowed them to be counted among righteous. It's that legal Jewish status that gave them the um, uh, opportunity to begin to walk into the Torah and to begin to enjoy the promises spelled out and reserved exclusively for covenant members. So it's within that context that Paul says, I'm perplexed in Galatians 4.20. Why is he perplexed? Because as I understand it, the Gentiles were beginning to entertain this notion that, hey, because we're not Jews, we haven't really arrived yet. We've accepted Yeshua, but we haven't really made it yet. We're just at the doorway. We need to step through the doorway by becoming Jews, and then we've got the full package. And it is that decision that Paul is trying to warn them against, to warn them against that, that, that Jewish-only covenant membership, which we term works of the law or, covenant, or uh, covenantal nomism. That, I believe, is the context that we read about. And of course, if you're not even a believer, but you're just within a community of believers, and you're still trying to make a decision whether or not Jesus is the true Messiah, let's say you espouse the faith in Messiah, but you're not really a believer in your heart. You know, we've all met these kinds of people, people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but in reality, they haven't really surrendered to, to Yeshua. Well, the same concept's going on in the first century. People who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. Because your friends have done it, because your family members are doing it, you don't want to be ostracized. So you're 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 um you're 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 get, you're getting in so that you can you're fitting into to uh what what do we say? There's a clever saying. You're you're you you go to church so that you can maybe meet other believers. Or in the first century, you go to synagogue, you attend synagogue because there's lots of your friends and family members who go there, and you don't want to be left out, right? So you espouse to faith in Jesus, but you're not really a believer in Jesus. You're, you're a believer in mouth only, and word only, but not really in your heart. And it would be easy for you in this setting to probably be entrapped by the uh, theology that teaches that the Torah and that covenant membership and that um, salvation is for Jews only, because you're thinking, well, why not? Hey, sounds plausible to me. After all, the Jews have had the Torah for thousands of years, and they are, in fact, the only people who have a... Uh, what seems to be a view on the one true and only God. I mean, compared to paganism, wow, what 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 choice is there? So you might follow that line of logic and actually convert and become a Jew. And on the surface, it's harmless. But the problem is, where is your object of faith? Where are you placing your faith? Are you placing your faith in Jesus, the Messiah? Or are you placing your faith in your ethnicity, your conversion as a Gentile? See the point? And so it's within that context that Paul can then turn to Galatians 3.21, I'm sorry, Galatians 4.21 and say, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And then he turns around and talks about Abraham's sons, one a slave, one a woman, and he uses that analogy, the allegory of Mount Hagar and Mount Sinai. And we know that, um, I'm sorry, not Mount Hagar, of Mount Sinai and Hagar, of, of which we know that Sarah is is spoken of there, even though she's not named. Um, so these two women, the allegory of the two women in, in Galatians 4.24, it's within that context. Paul's not talking about being obligated to the law of Moses in 4.21, at least not initially. He knows that if you become a Jew, then uh, that obligates you to the Torah. However, the beginning of their journey is not Torah observance for Gentiles, the beginning of their journey into supposed covenant membership from first century perspective was their ethnicity, the change of status from Gentile to Jew. That's the first step. And 
That's the step that Paul is going to describe. That's really what he's warning against in 421. Tell me, you who desire to be proselytes, do you not listen to what the law says? Do you not listen to to um, examples spelled out by what it means to be a genuine covenant member? And then he goes into this analogy of the two women to explain how um, uh, it's the children of the promise who are genuine covenant members. And therefore, his, his, uh, his teaching on election is that he needs us to understand that God is the one who brings us into covenant membership. It's not something that we do on our own. It's not something that um, you can exact on your own other than uh, accepting Yeshua. So, uh, in verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 31, the final verse of this chapter, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. It is within the context of slavery and freedom, to be fair, that Paul uses the phrase under the law. But it's not quite the exact same um, application of under the law is the, is the point I'm trying to make. The, the, the larger context of Galatians 4 is the uh, um, who is a genuine son and who's not. And therefore, if you're not a genuine son by election, then you are a slave. And it's not so much a teaching that you're a slave to sin, although that's true. If you're not a slave, I'm sorry, if you're not a son, then you're, you are in fact a slave to sin. But instead of teaching us that, that we're slaves to sin, it's more or less a teaching that we uh, of our status. It's a teaching of on um, the status of of slavery versus the status of being a chi- a, um, a child, um, someone who has already inherited the promise, someone who's come to maturity, someone who is um, a child of promise, someone who has uh, um, been redeemed, someone who has been purchased. If you were in fact a slave, those types of things. It's it's that's more or less the context of Galatians four. It's not a teaching about being a slave to sin, per se. Although although that context is brought up, or that teaching is brought up in 4 and 3. So I hope I'm not trying to confuse you. Galatians 4 is a, is a tough passage, if you haven't figured it out. So we'll get to it when we get to it. But for now, this is just a primer. So the point I'm trying to make is Galatians 4.20 is probably more likely, in my opinion, the context being taught is that under the law is used as a uh, a stand-in word for under um, under the policies that teach Jewish conversion. Uh, tell me, those of you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. Tell me, those of you who desire to be, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers, ethnically Jewish for the purpose of the covenant membership that it's supposedly going to grant you, end quote. That's the meaty um, paraphrase that I'm applying to this phrase, under the law in Galatians 4.21. So let's keep reading my commentary and close. Gentiles in Jesus were as complete as they needed to be and to seek to ostensibly become Jewish only insulted the genuine gospel of grace by which they were so marvelously called. To Paul, there, speaking of the Gentile Christians in Galatians, their genuine faith in the promised word of Hashem as evidenced by the genuine working of the Spirit among them, read Galatians 5, was all the identity they would ever need. I'm sorry, read Galatians 3, um, to, to read about the Spirit working among them. Once counted as righteous by the righteous one himself, all the new Gentile believer needed to do was to begin to walk in that righteousness, a walk already described by the pages of the written Torah, a walk formerly impossible due to the deadness of flesh and bondage to sin. There it is, people. There it is. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 that the um, sinner, I'm going to butcher it so I better look it up, um, <clears throat> let me pull up Romans 8 uh, real quick. Uh, 
uh, I wish I could just quote it. I should be able to quote it, but I can't recall the passage that I want off the moment. So, let me look up for you. It's a relevant passage, so bear with me. Romans 8. Um, it's actually Romans 8, 7, and 8 is the verse I was really... Um, Highlighting, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Um, basically, this is what I'm trying to explain when I talk about uh, a walk that was already described in the pages of the written Torah, a walk formerly impossible due to the deadness of flesh and bondage of sin. Um, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8.8 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The point being is that if you have not surrendered to Yeshua, then no matter how hard you try... All of your righteousness essentially amounts to an insult to God. All of your good deeds amount to it. essentially um, self-effort, and you will only seek. I'm sorry, you'll only succeed in, in displeasing God. Ultimately, uh, in the end, your um, your 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 righteousness is going to fall apart because it's self-righteousness. It's of the flesh. Um, so we cannot please God if we're in the flesh. Obviously, if we are uh, sinners. Uh, which is what Paul's uh, uh, going to teach elsewhere. If we're sinners, ultimately the only way to please God, obviously, is to, to render to Yeshua. But even as a believer, even as a believer, now that you've been set free and you can actually fulfill the law of God, like Paul says in uh, in the same passage in Romans 8, um, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Even though as believers, even though we can actually fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, we still must guard against walking according to the flesh because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Meaning, if we apply the Romans 8.8 8, not to unbelievers but to believers, then what we have Paul saying is that as a believer... If you walk according to the flesh, then you're going to displease God. Indeed, if you if you if your mind is set on the flesh, then you're going to be hostile to God, and you're not going to submit to God's law, which a verse we know can apply to believers as well. Meaning, um, how could a believer's mind be set on the flesh? How could a believer not submit to the law of God, especially since he has the Spirit of God living within him? How could he do so? Because he he can quench the Spirit of God within him. He can set his mind on the flesh, which is really contrary to the very law of God and the very Spirit of God that is, that is housed up within inside him. So don't do it, people. Don't do it, because you're just inviting the punishments that, um, that the law enjoins upon covenant members. Uh, which, let me keep reading my commentary, and let's just kind of bring this concept of uh, the believer's relationship to the Torah to a close, and then I'll speak freely if I need to. We are not under the law, in the sense that we're not under bondage, and we're not under condemnation. We are truly under grace. We're not under condemnation. We have been wonderfully forgiven in Messiah. We truly are under freedom. Biblical freedom, however, is not a license to walk away from Torah. Biblical freedom is liberation to walk into Torah and into the righteousness that Hashem envisioned for us all along. Let me pause and just remind you that the picture painted for us by the Exodus story in the book of Exodus, the uh, the, the deliverance from Egypt, what did Moses say to the Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they may worship me. Why couldn't they worship him in Egypt? Well, because they were slaves to Pharaoh. They were slaves, and therefore Moshe understood from God's perspective, slaves cannot worship the master 
the way that the master wants them to worship. Slaves don't have the choice. They don't, they don't get to choose when and where they can worship God. Why? Because they are slaves. The Pharaoh would not let them. The Pharaoh would not let them leave. He, he worked them um, uh, uh, to the bone. <laughs> and so Paul, Paul is going to use the same idea. He's going to build on this idea because he knows his Bible. Biblical freedom is not a license to walk away from the Torah. Biblical freedom, as Paul is going to describe it for us, is liberation, said being set free from sin, and freedom to walk into Torah. The same paradigm that we read about in the book of Exodus is that the children of Egypt, I'm sorry, the children of Israel were set free from Egypt in order to be brought through the desert and to the foot of Sinai to be married to God and to be given the, the Torah, to be given the words of God. So the picture is that they were brought out in order to be brought in to the promised land in order to serve God and walk into his ways. They were liberated. There's that theme of freedom. They were set free from sin, the type and shadow that, that Egypt portrays in the Bible. They were set free in order to be able to walk into the promises of God spelled out in the words of God. That's why God gave them his words at Mount Sinai. Make sense? So, biblical freedom is liberation to walk into Torah and into the righteousness that Hashem envisioned for us all along. In fact, that's what Romans um, 8, uh, 20, what is it, our familiar passage, Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 teach us. We know that... Uh, uh, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what does 29 go on to say? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's a great passage. It's a great passage. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. But we have we know that all things work together for good because we're called according to his purpose. And um, is that really the passage I wanted to read? That's not the passage. That was a great passage, but that's not the one I wanted to read. Let me pull up Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's the one I really wanted to read. Um, uh, what is, uh, we know this. Uh, this is familiar. For by grace you've saved, been saved through faith, and this is not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, verse 9 says, so that, uh, so that no man may boast. But verse 10 is the kicker. Listen to this. Paul already tells us we've been saved by faith through grace. Uh, by, uh, through, uh, or by grace we've been saved through faith. And that it's not our own doing, it's God's gift. And that it's not a result of works. But then verse 10 goes to saying that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You could say that using the paradigm spelled out that I'm describing in the book of Exodus, God prepared the Torah beforehand for Israel to walk into. God prepared the land of promise beforehand for Israel to inherit. Those are things that God had in his mind. We know this to be true because God gave us that insight peak when he talked to Abraham in the book of Genesis, when he told Abraham of the promises in, say, Genesis chapter 12 and following. So we know that Israel was was being called out in order to be brought in and into a relationship with God, into the land of Israel, into the land of Israel, into the land of promise, and into a covenant relationship with uh, the Torah, to the words of God. So God, if we were to apply the Romans uh, I'm sorry, the Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 passage to, to uh, Israel, we could say, for by grace they have been delivered from uh, through faith in the, in the blood of the Passover lamb, uh, delivered from Egypt through uh, uh, faith in the Passover lamb, 
And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of their works, but so that no one may boast. For uh, the children of Israel are his workmanship. They were his workmanship, created in Christ. Created Well, they, yes, they were created in Christ Jesus, but uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for, for Torah obedience, which and for inheritance of the promised land, which God prepared before and that they sh- should walk in them, walk in the promises, walk in the covenant responsibilities. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? If I continue in my commentary, positional righteousness always results in behavioral righteousness. It's that simple. Put plainly, Torah submissiveness is the natural result of being set free from sin and condemnation and set free unto Yeshua. That's the point we're trying to make. And so it's it's a no-brainer. If we have been set free by God, our freedom results in being empowered to walk into the Torah. Not to walk away from it, but to walk into it. That which we could not do formerly because of deadness of deadness of our heart, deadness of the flesh, the uh, uh, the bondage of the flesh, the bondage to sin, the condemnation that hung over heads, the the the, uh, the 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 blindness of our eyes. All of that prevented us from keeping the righteous requirement that the Torah enjoins upon us as covenant members, as believers. Torah submissiveness is the natural result of being set free from sin and condemnation, and set free unto Yeshua. David Stern's notes with my inserted comments and accent, um, uh, David Stern notes with my inserted comments as I read my commentary, and let's this, this, read this lengthy quote from Stern, which because I think he captures it succinctly here. Quote, Christian scholars have discoursed at length about Shaul's supposedly ambivalent view of the Torah. Their burden has been to show that somehow he could abrogate the Torah and still respect it. This is our section on under the law, where we're talking on the challenging this notion that under the law means under the obligation to the Torah, and that Paul, by stating that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, means to convey that we're no longer obligated to keep the Torah because we've been set free from the law in favor of being brought into a relationship with Jesus. David Stern is challenging that notion, so let's keep reading Stern. Non-Messianic Jewish scholars building on the supposedly reliable conclusion gratuitously supplied by their Christian colleagues that Shaul did in fact abrogate the Torah, have made it their burden to show that the logical implication of Shaul's abrogating the Torah is that he did not respect it either, and thereby removed himself and all future Jewish believers in Yeshua from the camp of Judaism, the so-called parting of the ways. In this fashion, Stern continues, liberally oriented non-Messianic Jews in the modern era have all have been able to have their cake and eat it too, to claim Jesus for themselves as a wonderful Jewish teacher while making Paul the villain of the peace. Stern goes on to say, But Shaul had no such ambivalence. For him, the Torah of Moshe was unequivocally holy, and his commandments holy, just, and good. It's lifted from Romans 7.12. And so were the work so were the works done in true obedience to the Torah. Those were the works we just read about in, in um, Ephesians. Uh, eight, nine, uh, two, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. The works that God prepared beforehand are really the works of the Torah. Stern goes on to say, um, in order to be regarded by Hashem as good, works done in obedience to the Torah had to be grounded in trust, never in one's submission to a man-made ceremony, viz. 
in one's Jewish status, like we read about in Romans 9:30 verses 9:930 through verse uh, 9:30 through 10:10. Stern goes on to say, if one keeps in mind that Shaul had nothing bad, nothing but bad to say for the sin of perverting uh, circumcision, Red Hair's conversion into ethnic-driven righteousness, and nothing but good to say for the Torah itself then the supposed contradictions in his view of the Torah vanish. By the way, um, Stern didn't actually say circumcision, red hair's conversion into ethnic-driven righteousness. I actually inserted that in brackets. What what um, Stern actually says is the sin of perverting uh, legalism, the, uh, the Torah into legalism, the law into legalism. But uh, we won't go there for now. But basically what Stern's trying to uh, convey is that Paul had nothing bad to say about genuine... Genuine law keeping within the framework of a believing, um, within the framework of 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 a believer in Yeshua, and in that sense, Stern's going to going to go on to teach that um, instead, uh, he has Paul has nothing but good to say for the Torah itself. Uh, then the supposed contradictions in his view of the Torah vanish. Instead, Stern says, instead of being the villain who destroyed the backbone of Judaism, as Paul is often thought of being, both in Christian circles as well as national Jewish or traditional Jewish circles. Uh, people look at Paul as being the one who destroyed Judaism uh, he, and, and led Jews astray. He, Paul, is actually the most authentic expositor of the Torah that the Jewish people have ever had, apart from the Messiah, Yeshua, himself. And that uh, footnote 49 is lifted from the, uh, Jewish, the uh, Jewish New Testament commentary on um, page 537-538. In conclusion, in my own commentary to the section to Under the Law, basically I say this. Paul's teaching on Under the Law naturally leads us into a discussion about Torah observance itself and its relevance to believers in Messiah, Yeshua. It is that topic that I will now turn to in section 8 below. And just, I'll, get, I'll, let, I'll peek at uh, section 8. This is going to be starting next week. We're going to turn to section 8, Shomer Mitzvot, which means Torah observant. And we're, we're just going to talk about what does it mean to be Torah observant as a believer in Messiah? What does it mean for, the, to, for me to say that the law of Moses is still relevant in the life of a Jewish and a Gentile believer in Messiah? We're going to talk about that in our um, next section starting next week. But in conclusion to this week, uh, what have we learned about under the law? What have we learned about this phrase? Well, basically... I challenge us to to understand that when we read under the law in Paul, and you know I already pulled up the, all the passages in um, in Romans and in Corinthians and in Galatians um, and in Philippians and Hebrews and James, every one of those passages that uses the English equivalent of under the law, which sometimes is huponamon and sometimes is ennamo, don't get hung up on the Greek is the point I'm trying to make. Either way, under the law, I suggest, demands context from the local surroundings, the, the, the verses in context. And so sometimes Paul uses under the law to convey this idea of uh, the believer is not under bondage to sin, therefore under the condemnation spelled out in the law. And other times Paul's trying to convey that under the law is, um, under the law is simply a phrase describing those who are uh, in a social position where the law is already the, um, the norm. For instance, Jewish people in the first century would be considered under the law in the, in the sense that the law was their family heritage. It was their ancestral religion. It was the, 
um, it was the presumed lifestyle of a Jew to be obligated to the law, whether or not he, whether or not, in other words, it's not a discussion about freedom versus bondage and etc. It's not a discussion about uh, um, that type of uh, um, verbiage. Rather, under the law, sometimes just refers to Jews. In other words, it's another way of saying uh, Jewish people. Uh, Romans three nineteen might fit that description. Now we know those that the law that whatever the law says is speak to those who are under the laws. I'm sorry, maybe not that one. Uh, maybe the uh, the the Galatians, um, one of the Galatians ones in say uh, Galatians four five to redeem those who are under the laws that we might be receive adoptions as son to redeem those who are under the law to redeem those Jewish people, uh, and then again, just be very very careful when you're looking at under the law in context. Don't just naturally assume that if someone says under the law that they that or someone quotes Paul's passage as saying under the law, don't just assume that that, that Paul is meaning under obligation to keep the law. It's not that simple. To be sure, and I don't mean to make this convoluted, to be sure, in the first century view, worldview, even the word law itself didn't always mean the law of Moses. Could have meant Roman law, could have meant uh, the law of the rabbis it could have meant the law of the land. It could have meant moral law. It could have meant the oral traditions, what we call maybe the law of the rabbis or whatnot, um, the legal traditions, the, the, the what later became the mission of the Talmuds, the Gemara, the things like that. So we've got to be careful with this word law as well. So just context, context, context. If I could um, produce bumper stickers and give them out to everyone, the, the bumper sticker would say this, context is king. Context is king. That's the point I'm trying to make. So, let me dismiss in prayer those of you who are in the live class. I'm sorry, those of you who are not in the live class. But for those of you who are in the live class with me in Skype, um, after I dismiss in prayer, I'll give you permission to unmute your microphone and you're welcome to dialogue with me. We can stay for 15 minutes and chat. Uh, but let me dismiss in prayer. And um, I just want to thank everyone for joining me tonight. And I encourage you to um, set your calendar for uh, Tuesday evenings. 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. Let's close. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Spirit into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father. We thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us from the curse pronounced in the law, a curse reserved for unrepentant sinners. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us into a right relationship with you via your son, Yeshua. And therefore, we no longer have to worry about the condemnation reserved for sinners. We no longer have to worry about being uh, counted among the unrighteous because we have been counted among the righteous because of the righteousness of Messiah that has been conferred to our account. And for that f reason, Father, we cry, Abba, Father, we bless you, Lord, and we thank you for this awesome responsibility that puts us on a direct um, course to walk into your ways, not to walk away from law, not to walk away from obligation to what Moshe laid down, but to walk into it as covenant members, but to walk into it as genuine children of the king, as genuine sons of Abraham, both Jews and Gentiles, all those who have been called out, who have been elected, those who have been redeemed and, and grafted into remnant Israel, both Jew and Gentile alike. God is not the God of the Jews only. Thank you, Father, that you have redeem both Jews and Gentiles, those from among the nations, just like you promised in, to Papa Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, that you would bless him and through him 
all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We know that Papa Abraham is the father of Jews and Gentiles who place their faith in Yeshua. So thank you, Lord, that you are bringing us together. Thank you that you are forming a community of Jews and Gentiles with Yeshua as the head. Thank you that the body is knit together one to another as we continue to walk into your ways and to espouse Jesus as Lord. Thank you that you have set us free. Raise us up and strengthen us and continue to be uh, give us an opportunity to be a voice of um, salvation, of witness to those around us. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory in B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>